Well, good morning. It's good to see you here. Uh, my name is Matt Howell. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to Redeemer and especially this kind of new strange phase of our church. If you're here with us uh, in person, I don't know what your experience of this um, space is like, but I'll just tell you for me, I'd say it's pretty bittersweet. It's uh, the sweetnesses and just being together and seeing each other's faces, or at least part, part of people's faces. I think that's been, um, it's just such a relief to be together, to be in, in a space, and what a gift that we can have this space right across the street from our building and safely spread out, and it's just been sweet to finally be in a heated space together. Uh, the bitterness, though, is that we're still so spread out, our worship is still so limited, and uh, strange and just kind of this bitter reminder that we are still in this pandemic that impacts everything and has been going on exhaustingly way too long. Uh, but I'll just say this one last thing before we get into the text. I realize that with every decision that we make as a church, there's frustrating and uh, disappointing aspects to all the, you know, potentially of all the decisions that we make. Uh, questions that come up, is it even responsible to gather indoors at a time like this? Is it, is it worshipful to be able to gather but you can't sing? I mean, all those questions are valid and I totally get it. This is not ideal by any means uh, whatsoever. And, uh, but with a lot of prayer and research and tons of discussions, this is kind of where we've landed as a church. And so thank you for your grace and your patience as our leadership seeks to navigate a really impossible uh, situation. No doubt we're making mistakes along the way. My guess is we'll probably look back at this moment with some level of regret over things that we decided to do or decided not to do. And yet, without the clarity of hindsight, here we are and here's what we're doing. And so thank you for your grace and your patience with us. Thank you for being here with us this morning online and in person. And welcome to Redeemer. We're glad that you're here. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer's a church. And what that means is we're a community of people and we are trying to learn how to love, how to love God and how to love our neighbor as we rest in his love each week, as we remind each other of his love throughout the week, and as we seek to reflect his love to our friends and our neighbors here in Midtown in service. And in order to help us do that, this season of Epiphany, what we're doing is we're looking at the letter of First Peter. We're trying to answer this question, what does it look like to be a church in a post-Christian age? in a post-Christian culture. And the, the running metaphor through this letter is that the church, uh, is, is that we are exiles. Did that fall out of mine? Is this mine? Masks just flying out of my pockets. Um, the church, we, we are, that's not mine. I, I don't know whose that is. Just random masks up here. Um, the church is, uh, we're exiles. We're sojourners. This is not our home. And I just think it's providentially interesting that even as a church body for this season, we've been displaced from our own building. And here we are in this giant dark warehouse thing. And it's just, we're having to re-experience, even in a weird way as a church, what it feels like to be homeless, to be churchless, buildingless. We're, we're exiles here. And part of what it means to be exiles is that we're distinct from the world. We're different. We've, we've noticed throughout this letter so far, we have a strange identity, a distinct identity. We have a strange hope. And today I want you to see that we have a strange story, a different story. Back in 2014, there was this fascinating um, experiment that was reported by NPR where a psychologist impersonated a nutritionist and she uh, created this milkshake, basic, a basic milkshake, 300 calorie milkshake, but she 
bottled it in two different labels with two different kind of titles, names, and then served it to two different groups of people. The first, the first shake was labeled Sensa Shake, and it was labeled as being guilt-free, fat-free, uh, and, it was, and it said on the label it was 100 calories. The second shake was uh, titled Indulge, and the little subtitle said, Decadence You Deserve. And it was labeled as 600 calories. Same shake, falsely labeled to two different groups of people, and people drank it. And what they did is they had nurses monitoring their body's response to drinking these shakes. And they were specifically looking at this one hormone called ghrelin, which is like your hunger hormone. It's the hormone that kicks on in your body that says, I need food now. Here's what's fascinating. So the group that thought they were drinking this low-calorie, milkshake, smoothie, whatever they were drinking, they said that they felt hunger, they felt hungry sooner, and their hormone levels actually responded faster. And the people that thought that they were drinking this fattier, indulgent, you know, milkshake, they felt fuller longer, and their hormones of hunger responded poorly, like dropped dramatically. So here's what's fascinating. Point being, the stories that we are told and the stories that we believe don't just impact your beliefs, they impact your body, like physiologically. That's that's crazy. And I think what's fascinating is that this is why Peter in this letter so wants the Christian story to be not just in your beliefs, but in your bones, because when this story gets in, impacts you, it impacts every part about your existence. And if you're going to see the Christian story, you have to see its demand, you have to see its hero, and you have to see its beauty. So for the rest of our time this morning, that's kind of what I want to look at. I want to look at the demand of the Christian story. I want to look at the hero of the story and the beauty of it. So let's just look at those three things one at a time. First, the demand of the story. And here's where... It's going to require you to bend your brain a little bit because we're looking at a letter that was written about 2,000 years ago. And Peter is writing this letter talking about things that happened hundreds of years before that. If you you see in verse 10, he mentions the prophets. He's referring to the Hebrew prophets of the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, these dudes. And here's what he says. They were like forecasting the weather in a spiritual sense. Part of what it meant to be a prophet was predicting what was to come to future generations. Like, you know, somebody who's predicting the weather, only they're saying it's not, it's not gonna rain next week. They said in the future, there's gonna be this downpour of grace for you. You see that in verse 10. They, quote, prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. They're looking ahead and they're predicting this moment where there was gonna be this downpour of grace. This is this salvation that you see at the beginning of verse 10 concerning this salvation. Now notice, this was not just a prediction that randomly popped into their brains. They didn't just make this up. This was revealed to them, as you see in verse 12. It was revealed to them. Okay, who revealed this to them? Well, look at verse 11. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. This is saying the Spirit of Christ, God dwelling within them, 
was the one who revealed this future grace downpour to them. Now, put all that together, here's what this is saying. Looking back hundreds of years ago, there's these Old Testament prophets that have been telling this story that one day the Messiah is going to come and bring salvation, and with him is going to be this monsoon of grace. That's the story. So, okay, what is the demand of that story? Here's the demand of that story. That demands a response. If you hear that, I mean, that is such an outlandish claim. God has come in the person of Jesus to bring salvation and saving grace to the world. That is such an over-the-top claim. If you hear that and you think, yeah, 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 okay, I've heard all this before, and you just shrug it off, then you're not listening. I mean, consider this. Let's say that tomorrow afternoon you check your mailbox and you have a letter with your name addressed, it's from the Shelby County Clerk's Office, and you open it up and it's on official, you know, formal letterhead, and it says, uh, you know, after much uh, investigation, we have discovered that you are the long-lost, you know, Peabody heir, and you've got, you've got to come down to the office this week and fill out some paperwork and claim your rights to, you know, the $12 million Peabody fortune that you're due. Now, if you read that, you would think, okay, that sounds like that made-up scenario the Redeemer pastor was talking about yesterday. That, that can't be legit. But here's the thing. Would you just crumple that paper up and throw it away? Would you not send an email, place a phone call, look into it? Because it, the, the claims of that letter are so, is so big You better not just question whether or not it's true. You better know whether or not it's true. Because if it is true, and you just crumpled it up and threw it away, you have massively blown it. You have missed out big time. It's the same way with the Bible. The Bible is claiming that God himself has come down to rescue his people and to renew the world in the person of Jesus. Those claims are so over the top and so outlandish. You better not just question whether or not that is true. You better know whether or not it's true, which means you can't just crumple it up and throw it away. You better investigate. You better ask some questions, do some research. Uh, it's, it's, it's intellectually irresponsible to just say, well, I, I think I know what Christians believe and I think it's crazy. You better figure it out for yourself. Ben or I would love to sit down with you, engage your questions, provide resources, whatever we have you know, to offer you. Now we're not saying we know all the answers, but we'd happy to explore whatever questions you might have because the claims are so big. If it's true, if the Bible's true and you just crumpled it up because you think you assume what, you, what, what it means, what it's saying, and it is true, then you've blown it. Do you know what the Old Testament prophets did? Look, it says that they did research. Look at verse 10. It says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating. In other words, they investigated. They sought out more answers. I think this is crazy. God speaks directly to them and reveals what is to come, and their response is, oh my goodness, we better do our homework. We've got to do more research on this. That's the demands of the story. It, it, it's, it's, it's too outlandish to just shrug off. The stakes are too high. 
If you just shrug it off and throw it away without really paying attention, then you're not listening. The demand of the story. Now, secondly, let's look at the hero of the story. The hero of the story. Uh, Verse 11 says that this downpour of grace that the Old Testament prophets were talking about was the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glory. In other words, he's saying that the whole Old Testament is pointing forward to the person and work of Jesus. And then the New Testament, of which Peter is a part and which Peter is writing, look at what he says in verse 12. He says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. In other words, he's saying everybody in the Old Testament was looking forward to Jesus. And now that we're announcing the good news of Jesus, the New Testament is looking back to the arrival of Jesus, which means the Old Testament's about Jesus. The New Testament's about Jesus. The whole Bible's about Jesus. The whole Bible, Jesus is the hero of the Bible. The whole thing is about him. Sort of like how the whole internet was about Bernie memes this past week. The whole Bible is filled with Jesus. Now here's why this matters. Here's why this is important. Because unless you know that the Bible is fundamentally about Jesus, you will come to the Bible and you will misread it. You'll come to church, you'll come to Christianity, and you will, and you will, you will miss it. And here's why, because our default assumption is that life is about us. A friend of mine, um, Sammy Rhodes, who's written a couple books now, famous Twitterer, Twitterer? That's got to be a word. Famous, he's got a lot of fans on Twitter, and... Uh, he's got this quote, he's the RUF campus minister at South Carolina, and he has this line where he says, uh, I have a superpower, the ability to make everything about me. And I think, man, that's, that's a superpower we all share. We all have this ability to make everything about me. Let's just use me for an example. I, I can come into the kitchen and see dishes in the sink and think, why does nobody in this family care about me? I mean, I, something is so wrong with me that I can make dishes about me. I can make traffic about me. I'm going somewhere and I'm in a hurry and I'm frustrated because people are on the road. And I'm like, what? don't y'all know that I'm running late to something? Get out of the way. And they're like, we don't know you exist. But the point is, is I, you know, I can make dishes about me. I can make, you can make anything about you. That's just our default assumption. If you come to the Bible, if you come to Christianity, you come to church with the default assumption of this is a story about me, then you'll miss it. Here's how this plays out practically. Here's what this looks like in practice. You come to the Bible and you think, well, this is, this is basically a guidebook of tips and tricks that I can glean in order to make my life better. This is a book that, was been, that has been written to enhance my life. It's basically a, a, it's, it's a, it's a book of life hacks by, written by God, so they're good. And so it's one way that you can do this is you say, well, okay, if you, do you wanna feel good? Well, the Bible says forgive people. Or um, you want a good career? Well, just be generous. You want a happy family? Well, just be patient. Uh, You want to be be a good person? Care for the poor. And that totally misunderstands the very nature of Christianity. We assume that the Bible is about us, and it's not. It's about Jesus. 
I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones put it in her, um, the, the intro of her famous children's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible. I included the quote at the beginning of your uh, bulletin, but here's what she says. She says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think that the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people that you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Now, in case you missed it, Here's what she just said. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Jesus. That's why when we come together as a church every week, we gather together to rest in him. We come through these doors as people in need of grace. And we sit here and we we have the Bible opened up to us and we hear about the grace of Jesus and we come to this table and we consume the grace of Jesus. And then we leave here and dismissed as people who are loved and forgiven by Jesus. He is at the center of everything in here. This is not a TED talk on how to make your life work better this week. This is a place where you can hear the good news of Jesus who is our hero, the one who has come to rescue us. Lastly, the demand, the hero, and I'll be brief on this one, the beauty of the story, the beauty of the story. Verse 12 might be one of the most fascinating verses in the whole Bible, in my opinion. I want to read it slowly so that you can grasp what this is saying, because it's, it's fascinating. Verse 12, it was revealed to them, talking about the Old Testament prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. When he uses that word things there, he's talking about the details of the good news of what is preached to you. He's talking about the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus. So let's keep going. Look at the end of verse 12. Things into which angels long to look. That little phrase is astounding. Because this is saying the gospel is so endlessly beautiful, angels can't stop looking at it. They long to look at it. That word long is the Greek word epithumia, which elsewhere in the Bible gets translated as lust. This is saying angels angels are obsessed with the gospel. They're fixated on it. It has captured their imagination. They can't stop looking at it. They can't stop thinking about it. They are never bored with it. Now, I know talks about angels is strange and weird for some people, but, you know, angels in the Bible are these pretty powerful beings that live continually before the presence of God. 
And yet there is something that happened on earth with Jesus that is so breathtaking that they can't stop looking at it. They can't stop thinking about it. What is it about the gospel that is so capturing to immortal beings like angels? What is it about it that is so breathtaking? You know what it is? It is that monsoon of grace that was talked about in verse 10. The undeserved grace and mercy of God for sinners and sufferers. It it, it is not this gift that you have to earn like it's a prize. It is just this it is just this liberal, generous, lavish bestowal of kindness to the least deserving of people. Here's what this means practically. When you did that thing again that you promised you would never do, there's grace for you. When your heart has grown cold and cynical, there's grace for you. When you've walked away from your faith for the hundredth time, the thousandth time, there's grace for you. When you did that cruel thing and you wanted to do it, you meant to do it, there is grace for you. When you have sinned and failed and screwed up and lost control and lost your temper over and over and over again, there's grace for you. It never runs out. Now, how can God, how can God just be gracious? That seems irresponsible. It seems cheap. It seems too free. I mean, some of you might even be infuriated with that idea. Somebody has to pay. Well, look at verse 11. The reason why God can be gracious is because of the, quote, sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. This is talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is is the expression of his kindness and of his grace. God himself came and he bore the penalty for all of our sins, all of our evil in himself on the cross. All of, the, all of the evil in the world, he bears in and of himself. And all of the evil that we inflict on the world, he bears in and of himself and satisfies God's justice fully, completely, finally. And then bursts out of the grave so that death no longer gets the last word, but Jesus gets the last word. And, and you start thinking about, okay, the death and resurrection of Jesus. You start doing the math and you can start to see why the angels never stop wanting to think about it, never stop looking at it. Because of his death, that means that my guilt and shame has been taken care of. Because of his resurrection, that means there's, there's hope for new life. That means COVID and cancer and car bombs, are, those are all temporary. One day, that will not be a thing anymore. Because of his incarnation that tells you that he, he, he loves us enough to come for us, that we are, we are ne- we're not alone. Because he came to us and he suffered, that shows that he came in weakness, which means he, he did not come to take power. He came to share power. I mean, on and on and on you could go. We're going to be teasing out, fleshing out the implications of the gospel story for eternity. I mean, it's been said that the gospel is compared to an ocean where it's so simple and so accessible, even toddlers can, can play in its, in its waves, and yet it is so endlessly deep, you can never plumb the depths to the bottom. So here's the last question. 
Uh, what do we do with this? What do you do with this? Um, there's a great book that was written in the past year or so called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And he spends 23 chapters of that book examining, fleshing out the beauty and the, and the, and the wonder of uh, Jesus's heart for sinners and sufferers. And in the very last chapter, the conclusion of that book, he asks this question, okay, how do you apply all of this into your life? And he uses this illustration to answer that question. He says, okay, imagine an Eskimo wins a vacation in this kind of sunny place. And when he gets to his hotel room and he goes out onto his balcony and he feels the warmth and he sees the brightness of the sun, he doesn't ask himself, how do I apply this to my life? He just simply enjoys it. He just basks in it. Maybe the most important thing that we can do in response to the story of Jesus is to respond in the ways that the angels do. Just never stop looking at it, enjoying it for what it is, basking in the beauty and the wonder that God himself has come for people like us to extend grace and kindness. Bask. That is your invitation this morning. Let me pray. Father, would you give us eyes to see the beauty of this story, the wonder of the story? And I pray that that would get not just into our beliefs, but get into our very bones. Transform us into, into people that are radically different because we have tasted and seen that you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name.